<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hey everyone, I'm Ian DeBorha and welcome to Movies That Changed My Life, a podcast where your favorite stars break down the films that made them who they are today. This week's guest is actor Ed Helms. You may know Ed as Andy Bernard from The Office or Stu in The Hangover, but he joins me today to chat about his new show, Rutherford Falls, and film Together Together. Ed and I talk about what it's like to bring a passion project TV show to life, whether or not Andy Bernard would have liked Monty Python, and the movies that changed his life. If you listen to the show and want to give us some thoughts, please use the hashtag Movies That Changed My Life and tag IMDb on Twitter and give us a star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Here's Movies That Changed My Life with Ed Helms. Ed Helms, welcome to Movies That Changed My Life. I am such a huge fan of everything you do. Uh, of course, most of all, The Office. But how's it going today? Thank you, Ian. I am fantastic. It's great to be here. We're going to chat in a little bit about the three movies that you changed your life, which I am very excited to talk to you about. Uh, but before we get to that, let's chat a little bit about Rutherford Falls. So you have paired up with the amazing Michael Schur. Uh, obviously, fans know you two uh, work together on The Office, and you have a new show coming out on Peacock on April 22nd. I was lucky enough to see a couple of the episodes. I love it so far. Everything that you love about a Michael Schur project and everything you love about an Ed Helms project is like combined to perfection in what I've seen so far. Um, but for those who aren't aware, who haven't seen the trailer, what is Rutherford Falls all about? Well, it that that is a beautiful introduction, by the way. Thank you for those <laughs> extremely kind words. Um, uh, and yeah, to your point, I'm super proud of it. It is a show, uh, it takes place in a, uh, a small town in the Northeast called Rutherford Falls. Um, and uh, it centers around uh, my character and uh, Nathan Rutherford and my best friend, Regan Wells. Now, Ray Nathan is a descendant of the founder of the town, uh, uh, Lawrence Rutherford, who, who founded the town in the 1600s. His statue is in the town square. Regan, my best friend that I grew up with, she she's from the reservation, the uh, Native American reservation that abuts the town, and um, and our friendship is sort of the the heart and soul of the story. And the the statue uh, of Lawrence Rutherford in the town becomes uh, a uh, a tricky issue. From what I understand, um, obviously there are a ton of Native American themes like in the show, and like a lot of the writing staff 
are Native Americans, correct? It's like one of the biggest ever, I think, in a writing room, if I'm not mistaken. You know, more than half of our writing staff uh, is Native American, uh, representing lots of different nations. Uh, and they, and then of course, a lot of our cast also is mm-hmm. uh, Native American. So um, this originally started as an idea as a, as an idea that Mike Schur and I were just kicking around as buddies kind of like trying to think what would be a, what, what do we want to talk about? What do, what, what do we want this show to, to feel like? And we just really got into these ideas of, and issues surrounding identity and history and, and how we relate to history and where these historical narratives come from. And um, are they accurate? Are they inaccurate? Um, are, do they, um, you know, and, and why are people, why do we cling to these stories so desperately, mm-hmm. um, when sometimes when they're even proven questionable or problematic or even outright false, uh, pe- we still cling to these things sometimes. So that felt like a really fertile area. And then as we got more and more into the idea, it became clear that, oh, this, you know, the, the founding of America and the kind of like, um, it just it started to feel like there was a really strong Native American story that would be a part of this world. And um, so then uh, we roped in Sierra Teller Ornelas, who is um, an amazing writer, showrunner that Mike and I both had worked with before. And um, and she's uh, Navajo. So it was a um, no brainer to just get her voice in the mix. And then it just kept growing and expanding. And really, I think once the three of us teamed up together, that's when Rutherford Falls really became this concept that, that it is, and that we all just kind of got super excited about. And, um, and the three of us really, really created it together. And here we are. There's something magical when you get to watch uh, a Michael Schur pilot, like you can't, you know, it's going to be amazing. Uh, and so what's it like for when this has obviously been like a, you know, passion project for you for, you know, however many years or months, I mean, getting to see the pilot that you had been theory crafting and adding additional showrunners and writers to getting, getting to see that kind of come to fruition, like, Oh, we have another like amazing piece of comedy uh, on our hands here. There's nothing like it. I mean, at some point you do sit back and realize, Oh my God, what did this? <laughs> like that we got ourselves a pilot here and this is really cool. And, uh, and oftentimes that pilot can, uh, can be kind of, uh, a, a sort of a bastardization of what you envisioned. And then in very rare, special and quite beautiful, uh, situations, it, it's really, what it is really a manifestation of your hopes and dreams of what it could be. And that's the case this time around. And we're, I'm just so proud of this thing. Yeah. And, and you can tell on screen the whole time. I mean, the energy from the literally like the first opening sequence, like locks you in and you know exactly what you're going to get. And so, uh, you know, I, I can't wait for other people to watch this. I know fans of, again, The Office or The Good Place or anything. This is like another amazing show that people can be really excited for. And it's, it's coming to Peacock April 22nd. Um, do you know how many episodes are going to be running for the first season? There are 10 episodes. There are almost nine because of COVID. <laughs> Uh, we almost had to trim the whole season down and end on episode nine, which was like 
heart wrenching for all of us. But um, <laughs> but we managed to kind of uh, circle back on it and and get it done safely. Well, I'm glad you were able to uh, because I love the show so far. I'm looking forward to see the rest of it, and I'm sure everyone else will too. Once again, that's Rutherford Falls. Uh, but right now, let's jump to. The Movies That Changed Your Life. We're going to go in chronological order uh, in order of release date. Does that work for you? Yeah, great. Cool. Uh, So the first one is 1979's Monty Python's Life of Brian. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has an 8.1 out of 10 on IMDb with 371,000 ratings. Directed uh, by the great Terry Jones, starring uh, the Pythons themselves, Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Michael Palin, Terry Gilliam, Eric Idle, and Terry Jones. Um, so talk to me about the life of Brian. When was well, the first time it's funny. We're, we're going in chronological order that the movies came out, but I actually consumed this movie well after I consumed the other two on, on my list here. But this is a good one to start with because, um, it, 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 this movie had, I mean, all of Monty Python had a profound effect on me. I was obsessed with the flying circus. I was, you know, they're, they're, BBC show from way back. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then of course all of their movies, um, are the Holy grail. And, uh, it just, it's all, it's all had a very profound effect on my sensibility as a comedian and, and my love of comedy and comedy performing. And really what I think that the Python guys do so brilliantly is, Two, two things. They are unbelievably silly. Like they just lean into silly with a kind of with a with a a, a level of deadpan that is breathtaking. <laughs> you know, like John Cleese has so much gravitas and yet he can say and do the dumbest things with all. And and he uses that gravitas as a tool. And that juxtaposition is just. So damn funny. And they all have their own versions of that. You know, Terry Jones was always the narrator for those, the, mm-hmm. the, his, the like the, um, their little fake history documentaries. It'd be like, you know, the year 19, uh, the year 1634, Samaria or whatever. And <laughs> he, he that, what's cool is that Terry Jones loved history and he loved history documentaries. And that, so he was doing a sort of parody of, something he loved. It was a loving parody. Um, I think, and, and as I, as I think about my affection for Monty Python, it's, it's hard to pick the thing that I love the most, but I do think that the life of that life of Brian is the top of the list because to me, as, as wonderful and fun and silly as those guys are, and they're always doing some level of kind of uh, satire. The life of Brian is just a grand satire, mm-hmm. and it and it is it is a, it's a sort of it's almost like a a satire fractal. Like the whole thing is a satire. You know, it's a it's a satirical take on religion. It's a satirical take on Christianity in in, in particular. But then it's a satirical take within. That every scene has its own satirical game, whether it's the stupidity of, uh, you know, of the Roman <laughs> legion or, uh, uh, or, or um, the absurdity of, uh, uh, of corporal punishments and, and or, or the cruelty <laughs> of, of crucifixion. All of these things like 
that those are sort of little micro satires that and every scene uh is it plays that game so beautifully and i and 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 it's also just unfathomably hilarious every time like it just holds up uh and you know i think it's graham chapman's greatest performance mm-hmm. um and i don't know yeah i could go on and on but i think you know as as i really um you know, comedy became my life. It became my career. It became my my deepest passion, and and I was a, a very uh, hungry consumer of comedy of all kinds. And so, uh, Monty Python just always felt like as much comedy as I was consuming. Monty Python always felt like this is some of the most important, meaningful, and hilarious stuff out there. Um, I think they might be offended if, if they heard me say that their <laughs> stuff is important and or meaningful, but it is to me, it really, really is. And, uh, and of course my first job, um, in comedy was the daily show, which was mm-hmm. all about satire. And, and that, I think all of this Monty Python tutelage from my for for decades was my training for the daily show you brought up just the historical aspect obviously the daily show of the fake interviews you guys would do or the fake like political rallies you would hold and all sort of stuff you know when i was watching that when i was younger i was also like obsessed with the flying circus and i think it i'm trying to say this in the least like pinkies up tea sipping way as possible but like having monty python and like watching the daily show sort of influenced me into like looking at comedy on a level that goes like to politics and like philosophy and religion and it's really hard to like nail those correctly and life of brian is i think the pinnacle of the pythons doing that i do it is funny how timeless uh because the life of brian is a satire of religion as a whole, like it will never not be relevant. Mm-hmm. And it's also, and one of those little micro satires within it is uh, there's this great scene where uh, John Cleese is um, just this like playing this kind of regular villager guy and he's mistaken for a, um, as, um, as like a prophet. Mm-hmm. And the mob starts to chase him. And they're saying like, oh, brilliant prophets, you know, bestow us with your wisdom. And he's like, what are you talking about? I don't know. I don't, it's not, that's not me. And they start chasing him and he, his sandal falls off and they hold up his sandal like, oh, we got his sandal, this holy sandal. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and he's trying to convince them that he's just a regular guy and they won't listen. How relevant is that right now? Like <laughs> people just won't listen to reason right now. Yeah. It's just like, I don't know. It's a really wild place that our country's in. But I, I feel like, you know, even something that was made 40, 50 years ago mm-hmm. or more is, is still uh, that it just speaks to the um, what you were saying, like the intellect behind it. And mm-hmm. That, that it stays that timeless. Last question here, and I have to ask, why didn't Andy Bernard ever sing uh, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life in, in The Office? I feel like th- this had to have happened. 
Is is there is that canon to uh, to Andy Bernard in your head being a Python fan, or is he strictly uh, acapella and Sweeney Todd? Oh, that's funny. I don't know. Um, yeah, that feels like a very it feels like a very Andy Bernard song. You're so right. In, in part because it's just a catchy, you know, yeah, uh, un- unbelievably catchy tune. Yeah, it's just Eric Idle at his best. Yeah. Um, being the chipper, like, crucifixion victim. But it's also perfect for Andy Bernard because it's it's a it's a state it's such a statement of uh, denial, right? Like, <laughs> like Eric Idle's being crucified and singing that song. And so I feel like if Andy Bernard were going through one any any one of his numerous tortured moments and singing that song in kind of a chipper way, it would it would fit perfectly. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> he did. He did have a British accent. We we kind of came up with this thing. Uh, I can't remember what season it was, but we kind of arrived at this trait for Andy that when he's extremely uncomfortable, he mm-hmm. just starts speaking in a British accent. <laughs> right, and that might have been kind of an unconscious nod to the <laughs> to the Python guys. I don't know. Yeah, where he's like trying to chase Michael around, he's like don't mind if I do. Right. <laughs> like, and- like, Everything. If you get him in a tight spot, he's just, well, all right. Okay, then. Um, Well, let's see. How do we get out of this pickle? Uh, That was uh, Monty Python's Life of Brian. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Uh, let, let's go on to your second pick, which is 1984's Beverly Hills Cop. It is a 7.3 out of 10 with 167,000 ratings on IMDb. Directed by Martin Bress, written by Daniel Petri Jr. and Danilo Bach, starring Eddie Murphy, Judge Reinhold, John Ashton, and Lisa Eilbacher. Um, classic 80s movie. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk to me when about Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, so I picked this one... I picked all three of these actually uh, because I think the the um, the assignment is movies that changed your life, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So yeah, the, these are um, they're all pretty silly comedies at the end of the day, but um, but that is my life, and I think Beverly Hills Cop was um, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> that there's so much about that movie that I, as a kid, it came out when I was 10 years old. And I think that it, obviously it was R rated, but I think that my dad took me to see it, which is like a terrible sin 
don't do that with your new child. Um, I will note that. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I think my dad took me to see it. I was already obsessed with Eddie Murphy from Saturday Night Live, which Mm -hmm. I had started watching when I was like six or seven. And um, and so I and Eddie Murphy uh, to me was everything. He was the funniest human being uh, in the entire universe and everything he did just he was the center of whatever you whatever room he was in he was the center of all of the energy and it was something that carried him through all of the saturday night live sketches and into his movies and beverly hills cop is just eddie murphy at his finest and he's he really is one of the sort of like four or five people um that i that made me want to do comedy i i didn't even understand a lot of those jokes when I was that young, whether it was Saturday Night Live or Beverly Hills Cop or whatever. But I knew I could just see the electricity in Eddie Murphy's spirit that he was having the time of his life. And I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to like, I wanted to feel what he was feeling and, and have, um, have that, uh, uh, just, I don't know, experience that same energy. And that was a big draw that this is me looking back and trying to kind of make sense of it all. I don't think at 10 years old, I was like, I want that energy. (laughs) (laughs) Like some super villain, 10 year old. Um, But uh, no, I, I I just loved everything he did. And I, um, he was, he had so much swagger Mm -hmm. and um, it, I, I just always wanted to be in a movie like Beverly Hills Cop. I love that you chose this movie because you are kind of connected to it uh, via The Hangover. So Beverly Hills Cop was the highest grossing R-rated comedy until The Hangover uh, beat that record when it was first released. So did you or the rest of the team use Beverly Hills Cop as like an R-rated comedy inspiration or have goals to sort of eventually beat that record? Yeah, I think that... Uh I mean, The Hangover to me was always a, a little bit of a sillier movie than Beverly Hills Cop. Mm-hmm. Like Beverly mm-hmm. Hills Cop, no one's um, – <laughs> I mean it, it's so funny, but like it, it's funny in a cool way. Right, Whereas right. like The Hangover is funny in some cool ways, but also in some sillier ways. <laughs> so yeah, I don't, I don't know that I was drawing any parallels uh, at the time, but I can sort of see what you mean now. Mm-hmm. Um just in terms of uh, a, of a movie kind of catching lightning in a bottle uh, mm-hmm. in, in a com- for for whatever reason, like it just resonates um, with so many more people than uh, than what you might have expected. Like certainly when we were making The Hangover, I think we all thought we were making something super funny, but not anything that would be like this international right. phenomenon. <laughs> um, but it's it's I think it's always a surprise when a movie just dominates like that, um, right? And uh, and it's yeah, it's an absolute thrill. Yeah, The Hangover was the number one R-rated comedy for a little while. It's been yeah, beaten good. now, I think. Yeah, right? I, I can't remember exactly which one it was, but for a while it was it was on top. So yeah, that's pretty cool company to be yeah. in there with with uh, Beverly Hills Cop. When I rewatched this, something that struck me about Eddie Murphy's character, and like you said, I didn't remember it being quite as like thrillery and actually actiony until I rewatched it. But the way Eddie Murphy can turn on 
the laughter to when he's serious or when he's like showing um, the cops in Beverly Hills, like, no, you should have presented it like this. The way he's able to deliver his lines in four different ways at like a moment's notice. Yep. Um, I mean, how, how do you, how can you describe that? Like as a comedic actor, like, do you like, what's that like to try and like muster that type of control? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, watching Eddie Murphy, it's, it's like watching, uh, you know, a violin virtuoso just like, you know, demolish a, a concerto or something like it's really, it's, it's so it's, it's, it's art. It really is. And, and to, uh, and, and for, for him, I think it just, it was so intuitive. And that's when you see, that's what makes someone to me, when I think of someone that's a genius, it's like, oh, this person um, has worked to hone this but they understand at an intuitive level what so many of us like strive and work for um, and maybe eventually get to. Uh, but um, but there are those there are those really exceptional people in, 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 in all kinds of fields, whether it's acting, comedy or uh, or music or finance or whatever. There are people who just kind of intuitively get things that I think. Uh, it's just can be beautiful to behold. And, um, and I think Eddie Murphy is one of those people. And, and that's why when you see, um, that's, I guess that's what I was talking about with the energy. Like you can tell when an actor is having fun, Mm -hmm. even if they're doing something really serious or intense or whatever, you can tell when it's like, I feel like you can see the wheels turning in actors a lot of time on screen and when the actor is really having fun and just like acting in a like <laughs> you know just getting into it um that's when we have fun as an audience right. and that's and those little beats where Eddie's like riffing and finding these moments and you know a lot of that stuff was just Eddie in the moment and yeah and those are just such beautiful perfect little moments of um of like a genius dropping little pearls on us. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I was too young to, to see Eddie Murphy in SNL, but something that really, you know, but I'd always heard in whatever documentaries I watched on SNL, everyone always talks about, oh, Eddie Murphy, you know, commanded the room and like, like what you've been saying. And when he, and hosted, by the way, he was 18 years old. Right. Or a, 19, a kid, I think. What a, a kid. Yeah. Uh, when he hosted SNL for the first time with two years ago now, uh, when he walked onto the stage to host, I like remember watching it. And, like I kind of got like chills. I was like, I like understand what anyone who ever saw Eddie Murphy do anything live, like what what they meant. Mm. Because the way he like walks on, the way he did the sets and and all the sketches, it was like, oh, like yeah. I mean, it's it's obvious because you can watch old, you know, uh, I almost said DVDs. You can watch old, you know, the old specials that you can stream or whatever, but when you see it live and you get to get the energy of the live reaction and seeing everything for the first time, it, it's really just hard to put into words. Um, yeah. Yep. And that was Beverly Hills Cop. Um, before we go on to your last pick, I do want to chat about something really quickly. Uh, I digitally screened uh, your new film, Together Together, at Sundance Film Festival this year. Um, it's scheduled to be released on April 23rd. I like loved it. I am a soon to be first time dad and wow. your character of Matt, I like saw myself cool. in like a lot of ways. 
Uh, I like to think I was as helpful as your character, but I know sometimes I'm probably not. But it, it was it, it is such a good and like wholesome movie, and just like everything about it is, is amazing. Um, oh, that's so, so sweet! Thank you so much. Yeah, that's another one I'm super proud of, and it's coming out literally the day after Rutherford Falls <laughs> drops. So depending on your appetite for Ed Helms, uh, it could be a really exciting or really horrifying week for you. <laughs> well, I, I think it's going to be happy because when I was watching it, and I think a lot of the tones around like movies and shows, and I think at Sundance, like obviously COVID and pandemic was at the top of a lot of people's minds, and Together Together and, and Rutherford Falls um, – have like a nice levity to them mm. that I think, you know, people who are so downtrodden with like a lot of doom scrolling on Twitter yeah. or, or watching, yeah. you know, too many true crime docs, like these two things are a nice like relief into sort of our post COVID world that we are seemingly like right at the edge of. Um, yeah. Boy, I sure hope so. Congratulations, by the way, on your, <laughs> your uh, pending fatherhood. That's super exciting. Yeah, yeah, I'm very excited. A little nervous in June, so I got a couple more months, but I, I am uh, very excited about that, so thank you. Um, and, and that's going to be released by Bleecker Street, so that's going to be uh, in theater, limited release, and then on demand, right? It's a limited release, but I think it's like over 700 screens or something. Oh, I mean, they're not messing okay. around. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it'll be, uh, I, I don't know how many cities it's in, but, um, but it's going to be a serious theatrical release, which is... Uh, you know, also given the timing, just a, a really exciting, I, I don't know, there's something so, uh, it just feels like we're making progress, right? Mm -hmm. If, if yeah. movies are going back in theaters, I, there's something really poignant about that to me. I'm super excited about that. Yeah, getting to, as fun as it was not to have to stand in the cold for hours uh, to go to Sundance this year, I did I did miss having being in a theater for like these really fun premieres and things like that, where like you definitely miss yeah, the yeah. group experience. So, yeah. Yeah, um, of course. Sundance, we were so sad to do a virtual Sundance. I mean, it's so yeah. proud to be a part of Sundance right. at all, but then to to not not be there, especially on a little movie like this where... Together, together is. I mean, the cast is so small mm -hmm. that you. I, you know, I've been to Sundance four or five times, and and when you have a such a tight knit little group like that, it's always so much more fun because you can kind of move around Park City as a little pod, and <laughs> right, right. everybody's kind of uh, hanging out together. And yeah, I just missed we we missed that, but uh, but yeah, again, so proud to be even a part of Sundance. I'm so glad you liked yeah, it. Yeah, I loved it, honestly. It's really cool. So, yeah, Together Together, Rutherford Falls. Be sure to go check this out. Back to back. Just have an Ed Helms weekend. Hey, for, you know. Yeah, go it. for it. Yeah, make make your own little film festival. Just double uh, down on Helms. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, let's get to your last pick here, which is 1987's Raising Arizona. Uh, this is a 7.3 out of 10 with 128,000 ratings on IMDb. Written and directed by uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen, or the Cohen brothers, uh, starring Nicolas Cage, Holly Hunter, John Goodman, Trey Wilson, uh, Francis McDormand, uh, a whole sling of amazing, amazing actors. Uh, this is the Cohen brothers' second film uh, in their now storied history of film directors. So, talk to me about Raising Arizona. I have a really vivid memory of the first time I I consumed this movie. Uh, I had just, I, when I was 13 years old, I had, uh, open heart surgery, which is a crazy thing <laughs> yeah. for a 13 year old. <laughs> um, 
And uh, I was lucky enough. I was lucky in that, like, I wasn't, you know, incapacitated really beforehand. And then afterwards I was, uh, uh, it, it addressed something that I wasn't symptomatic for yet. And so, um, so it, it wasn't this, it wasn't as big of a disruption as one might think. It was really, um, I was in, I think in the hospital for five days and then I was home recovering for Mm -hmm. two weeks and then I was back at school. Um, you know, taking it easy for a while, but, um, but, uh, that's all just to give a little context. Um, I was just home and my aunt from Nashville, I lived in, in Atlanta, Georgia, and my, my aunt, um, and my cousin came down from Nashville, uh, to sort of look after me. My aunt went to, I guess, Blockbuster and rent, just rented a bunch of movies, uh, that I could watch because I was still pretty much bedridden for a few days after I got home. They were fairly obvious choices, except for this one, Raising Arizona. And I had no idea what it was. She had no (laughs) idea what it was. And she just said, the clerk at the video store insisted, when I told him that that I was like, you know, taking care of a 13-year-old, he said that I have to rent this. So here it is. I don't know what it is. Whatever. I popped it in and I watched it and I was just mesmerized. Like, what is this? This is so weird. It is so bizarre and so charming. And it's sort of like, it feels deeply intellectual and yet also so funny and ridiculous. Um, And, and again, it's like my my favorite kind of humor is when a character is incredibly earnest and also incredibly funny in spite of themselves. So that is H.I. McDonough, uh, you know, Nick Cage's character in that movie. He's just so earnest and he wants to do the right thing and be a good husband and be a good dad and all this. But like he's he can't get out of his own way. And the way that movie is shot, I feel like it, it was yeah. revolutionary. Oh, yeah. So there's something about the visual vocabulary of that movie that I had never seen before. And I don't know what its predecessors are or what or where the Coen brothers kind of like found their inspiration. But um, the writing and the direction of that movie is is so much of why that movie is funny uh, in addition to the great performances, mm-hmm. of course, but the way the choices that that they made in the uh, in in everything, the lenses, the lighting and the uh, all, all these things that as a 13 year old, I didn't even really understand. All I knew was that I was seeing something so unusual um, and like, why is this talking head so much funnier than like a talking head in another movie? Well, okay, it turns out they're using like uh, a wider lens, right. lens and a prime, you know, and like a, they're playing with – it's just a – again, it's all these things that they were um, so deliberate in doing that um, that the overall effect on me was just this is magic. Th- that movie I think really uh, inspired me as a storyteller mm-hmm. like and as a, as a consumer of, of – cinema, like some, and TV, like how 
it made me really start to pay attention to how a camera is handled and how a camera is uh, um, m- moved around. What, why is it where it is? Um, and, and why is it, why are we pushing in on this moment? Why are we panning in this moment? Just all those considerations about how a movie is made and, um, and John Goodman is just like Oscar worthy in that movie. He's so he's so funny and charming and yet so evil. Like he's such a dark figure and he just drags uh uh he just he just drags Nick Cage down with him. Uh and it's I don't know. It's just awesome. Like you said about how it makes sense how you just felt like you never saw anything like this because A, you probably had it, because when I watch it, it doesn't look like it came from 1987, and obviously, I think that's because it just is massively influential in the way stylistically. Right, but right. like, you know, when people think 80s movies, they think Back to the Future and Ghostbusters and like The Breakfast Club and all amazing movies, obviously. But Raising Arizona just has that look and feel that just does not make it feel like like a quote unquote 80s movie. Does that make sense? Do you agree with that sort of sentiment? A hundred percent. Yeah, it's kind. Of, it's you're right. It, it. It. I think it was so influential that that to, that rewatching those things feels like oh yeah, this is a cool movie. Like you, you're not hit with the same sort of like avalanche of of novelty mm-hmm. that 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 when you watch it in its time, you can't help but feel. I, I love that what you said about how you know H I McDonough the earnestness while still being funny is um, like core to you as like an actor and like as a content creator Uh, because earnest and funny is Andy Bernard. I think that's what makes a lot of Mike Schur's stuff so magical uh, is that it it dances these lines. And again, what I've saw for Rutherford Falls, it's just like that. So um is that a conscious decision for you? Like even as you were creating the Andy Bernard character uh, with Mike Schur or as you were doing Rutherford Falls, like isn't H.I. McDonough or Ra- Raising Arizona a specific sort of like marker for you? Like this is the bar of earnest comedy that I want to hit as a comedian and, and as a writer. <laughs> I, I think that Raising Arizona uh is is it's very stylized and heightened and the and the a lot of the comedy is quite broad um which is different from like a uh, an Andy Bernard or office sure. kind of sensibility what where i do think there is a a clear parallel is like what i loved about Nick Cage's performance in that movie and Holly Hunter too like her she does the this she plays this same gank like sort of like like her character is kind of doing the same thing, which is they're really exasperated and they just feel the weight of the world all the time. And they're never laughing. None of it's funny. None of it is like, uh, none, there's not, not like a light moment. Even when, uh, HI is like pretending to laugh, it's heartbreaking <laughs> with, because with the he's jokes. feeling, you know, <laughs> the- <laughs> yeah, he's like trying to laugh along with, <laughs> with John Goodman yeah. and like, it's just so such a struggle for him because everything is so hard. It's that weight of the world that is so endearing and uh, and like you know the effort to carry that weight is what is I think when somebody when a character makes that effort, it is it really endears you to them. And I think that's what was the sort of turning point for Andy Bernard too was like 
in the beginning, he really was not a very redeemable character <laughs> or, or particularly likable. And it wasn't until I was offered the, the, the opportunity to, to become a regular on the show that we really started to ex- explore ways that um, that might make him more nuanced and complex. And that was such an exciting thrill for me because I, I love a character in part because it's, this, this is a lot of how I feel as a person moving through the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I feel like, um, like I'm stumbling and tripping and falling on my face, offending people, what, you know, on a regular basis, but I don't want to, I want to do better. I, I want to say the right thing. And I want to, you know, I want to be more kind and understanding or sympathetic. And, um, and so I think it's that of Nick Cage, you know, like shaking his head. Ugh. Yeah. I just want, he's like, just wants to get do better and wants his life to be better. And, and I think to the extent that people eventually, and I know it's, I know he's polarizing, but some fans of The Office really fell in love with Andy Bernard. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because, um, I think it was because you could feel that effort in him and you could feel his, that he cared. Mm-hmm. Even when he messed up, he cared and wanted to be better. I mean, um, you, yeah. you know, the I will remember you fall back to back with the uh, graduation speech is just a two perfect moments that I think even if you were a little, you know, back and forth on Andy, you see those two. And I think that's what people remember in terms of what he wanted, you know, in his life mm. and that earnestness that you keep talking about, like comes through so much. Yeah. So like in, in, in those great moments there, we discussed three fantastic movies, uh, life of Brian, uh, raising Arizona and Beverly Hills cop. Uh, do you see a through line between these three, three movies as to why you wanted to chat about these today? I love so many movies, and uh, and I hate questions like "What's your favorite movie?" or what the, <laughs> you know, because it it really is so reductive. Uh, it and it's just a almost like a fool's errand to try to try to pick things. But in and I love so many different kinds of movies, you know, like thrillers and dramas and all documentaries and and many of those I feel have changed my life in some ways um but these three I I always these three feel kind of like north stars for me they're really um it, you know as a comedic actor as a storyteller as a as a creator as someone who cares about an audience experience um and I I found each of these three movies to be like unusually inspirational for me and, and unusually affecting at the time that I saw them, you know, each one I can, uh, I really remember, um, the feelings that I had watching these movies for the first time and being, you know, blown away at the sophistication of the satire in the life of Brian and being just blown away by how badass Eddie Murphy could be and be funny at the same time. Um, and what a thrill his energy was. And then, of course, raising Arizona, just feeling like a UFO landed in my living room. Like, <laughs> what is this? Un- this is an un- – I cannot understand this and I want to and I want to understand it better. And it's making me laugh and it's making me think and it's moving me very deeply. I mean the the climax of that movie is 
so profound. Mm-hmm. The dream sequence at the end is just it's deeply stirring. Like it's it's hilarious, but also I think stirring. And so if there's a through line, that's it. <laughs> I think that's a perfect through line and, and it makes complete sense. Once again, thank you so much for uh, hanging out with me today. This was a ton of fun. Uh, we have Rutherford Falls coming to Peacock April 22nd. And then right after that, Together Together, April 23rd. Uh, any any last things for listeners before uh, we sign off? I don't know. Ian, <laughs> this has been a ton of fun. Thanks for... Uh... Thanks for taking me down memory lane here with these great movies. (laughs) Thanks so much. Uh, And we'll talk soon. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to head over to imdb.com slash podcast for more content on Ed and to easily add the movies that changed his life to your IMDb watch list. 